I don't know if you've ever had this experience where the world seems to feel a little bit out of control. Uh, now, I know that we always have to temper that when we say is uh, those who live in the first world, uh, what the world feeling out of control is like, a little bit different than if you live in the third world. Uh, but I had an opportunity recently this past week to sit down with my son, John, and one of our interns who's actually from Rwanda. Now, if you aren't familiar with Rwanda, you'll remember that about 25 years ago, there was uh, an attempted genocide there uh, where within about uh, 100 days, a million people were killed, were slaughtered with machetes, not with guns. A uh, very personal kind of death, a very horrible kind of experience. And this brother actually had friends and family, his own wife, who lived through this experience. And as the, the Hutus were slaughtering the Tutsis, um, his wife was just three at the time, and she remembers uh, the day that she had to watch her family killed before her. Now, when you see that kind, of, that kind of rage and horror and sin and brokenness in the world, it is really easy for you to, to start to ask yourself, what is going on? Uh, this clearly is not the way the world is supposed to be. This world is clearly broken. It's not working in the way that it ought to. And there's something deep down in the human heart that screams out in rage, this is not right. And it's in those moments that you really, I believe, if you are truly human, begin to consider God in new and fresh ways. You begin to ask questions like, God, where are you in this? And how am I to understand this? How am I to understand you? Well, this morning we are coming to a text where we find David, the, the Messiah, God's Spirit-anointed, chosen King who is supposed to deliver His people out of, out of evil, uh, out of the, the, the powers of the enemies, and to make them victorious as God's people and image bearers of the character of God but before the whole earth. And yet here we find David, this great mighty warrior, on the run. He is running for his life. We're back in our David series uh, where we see this ordinary man who becomes an extraordinary king. And we're in 1 Samuel 21 where David is running for his life. He is terrified. He is fearful. Now, David, you'll remember, he is God's great king. He is the one who killed Goliath with a slingshot. But the crowds in that moment began to sing about David's greatness. They began to sing, Saul has killed his thousands. That's the present king. But David, David, the spirit-anointed king to be, he has killed his ten thousands. And as Saul heard this song, we found that it put David's life in danger. In chapters 18 and 20 that we've read so far, Jonathan, Saul's son, made two different covenants with David, one with David himself. And then we saw last week how he made a covenant with David's house forever. This is Saul's son, Jonathan, making covenants with the king that is to replace him. He has everything to lose, but he loves King David to be. Now, what's interesting, if you track the life of David, is that the last third of 1 Samuel which talks about David's rise to the throne, has David on the run. A whole third of the book is, is really focusing on David's flight from Saul. He's the great king, the spirit-anointed king, and yet for a third of this journey, he is 
running for his life. Just as commentator Robert Bergen notes, over the nine chapters from chapter 21 that we're beginning today to 29, David looks like Israel wandering in the wilderness as he too flees the king who looks just like the kings of the nations. Saul looks like the Pharaoh. David looks like Israel running for his life. David is on the lamb running for his life in a world that looks absolutely chaotic. Maybe you can relate to that this morning. Maybe you feel like your life is chaotic. Uh, we got a number of people who are getting ready for weddings uh, this morning. And uh, maybe you've noticed that your bride is a little bit more intense than she used to be, and you're scared for your life. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> maybe some of you this morning, though, you have bills that you can't pay, and you don't know where the money's going to come from. Maybe you have a relationship with your spouse that you feel like is just full of friction. It doesn't look like the picture of the Bible that you long for. Maybe it's that your family, your family is against you. Your, 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 your outward family, they are against you. They don't love you. You don't feel accepted by them. In fact, you don't feel accepted most places you feel alone. There are all kinds of ways this morning that we can feel like this world is not operating on all cylinders. And this morning, David has a message for us. And we're going to see this. That as we find ourselves in fearful experiences, facing significant losses, we're going to see that provision, God's provision and protection ought to lead to our praise. God's provision and protection ought to lead to our praise. We should be a people who are praising God even from the difficulties of this life. Well, before we do this, let's go to God in prayer. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning as we come before you, we know that, that your wars... Father, that they are not one with a spear or with a sword. No, Father, you, you win us. You win our hearts through the power of your Spirit. You are sovereign over us. And so this morning, Father, as we come before you, we come as children who are needy. We are needy for bread that only you have. Lord, the bread of your word. And we pray that this morning that you would feed us, that you would feed us richly from this episode in the life of your servant David. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, that this wouldn't be a distant history lesson, but that this would be a message for us, for your people this morning that are here gathered to hear from you. Lord, do this for the glory of your name we do pray. Amen. Well, the first thing that we see is in verses 1 to 6. You'll notice there that God provides bread for David. He provides him with bread. Now, David has just left Jonathan, where he's discovered that he's no longer welcome at Saul's table. Now we pick up here in chapter 21 where David is running. He runs the knob. Uh, this is likely just northeast of Jerusalem. Uh, this is a city that we find in chapter 22 of 1 Samuel has become the city of priest. Now, as far as I can tell, it, it seems like this is a place where after in 1 Samuel 4, the Philistines have taken the tabernacle at Shiloh, destroyed it, You remember they took the ark, they returned it later. It seems like perhaps this is where they have removed or removed and relocated the sanctuary. Now others like MacArthur have said that uh, this was instead the most sacred shrine of Saul's kingdom, but, but it seems more likely to me the way that the events are described that this is the tabernacle where God's people meet with God. Now the priest, Ahimelech, that comes to meet David, comes out trembling with fear. He's fearful. You'll remember that it's, it's not a good thing, it doesn't seem like, in Israelite custom to have a guy who's of importance show up alone. It's not a good sign. That happened with Samuel and the elders, and here it's 
with David coming. And so he asks him, why are you here? Why are you alone? Now catch what David says in chapter 21, verses 2 to 3. Here's his explanation. He says this. David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. Now, David tells Ahimelech that he is on a a special mission, a kind of black ops sort of thing where he is been sent by the king to do something so important, so top secret, that he can't even tell this priest. I mean, he, he could tell him, but it's the kind of thing where if I, I tell you i got to kill you kind of thing. So Himelech says, that's good. I don't need to know anything else. And David goes on to tell him that there is a rendezvous that is coming with the men, the young men that are fighting with him, where he is supposed to meet them, and he needs to take bread to feed them. Now, don't forget, David's running for his life. There's not an in and out. There's not a fries that he can stop by for food. He is completely dependent on hospitality, and he goes here to the house of God. And he finds this priest, and he tells this priest that he needs bread. And he asks for five loaves or or whatever he has. And then the priest responds in verses 4 to 6, and here's how he answers him. He says, and the priest answered David, I have no common bread. On hand, but there is holy bread, and if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priests, Truly, women have been kept from us, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread. On the day it is taken away. So David here comes to him asking for bread. And he says, I've got this, I've got this bread. Now you'll remember that each week on the Sabbath, the priest would change out the bread of the presence, which was placed in the, the holy place in the tabernacle. It was uh, separated from the most holy place where God's presence abode most fully by this veil. And outside they had this bread that was laid out week after week. And the problem here with this bread is that Leviticus 24.9 says that usually, usually it was only Aaron and his sons, the priests, who were supposed to eat the holy bread in the holy place. It was a holy meal. But when David asked for the bread, Ahimelech actually offers David this bread so long as he and his men are ritually clean, having refrained from sexual relations. That's... That's including relationships with their wives. The laws of cleanliness didn't mean that one had sinned necessarily. He's, he's not saying that you need to be clean in the sense that uh, you've sinned in the thing that you need to be clean from. Sometimes it was sin, but sometimes it was just uh, certain actions that were supposed to separate them as a, a people that were set apart for the Lord. And so here he is saying that uh, you need to make sure that you're, you're taking this in a kind of priestly way, that you're holy in the way that you're taking it. Well, David confirms that they are clean. How they were clean with leaving in such short notice, we don't know. But he says that that's always how his men go out to fight for God. Did you catch that? This Holy Spirit-anointed king who is fighting for God's people says, 
my men, when we go to fight for God, we are holy as we go. We are prepared to fight for the Lord in a way that is in right relationship to him. See, they don't trust in swords and spears, but Yahweh who saves. Now, a couple of things are interesting here. First, there's not a precedence for this provision of bread that Ahimelech makes for David. The priest simply seems to put David's life above the rule for the bread. Second thing that's interesting here, David isn't welcomed at Saul's table, but God invites him to eat at his table. Did you see that? Chapter, chapters 18, 19, 20, no longer accepted at Saul's table. But here he is welcome at the table of God. See, David isn't attempting to survive in the wilderness. He, he is looking for survival in the wilderness, much like Israel during the exodus out of slavery in Egypt. In fact, the bread of the presence, it actually was placed before the holy place day after day, week after week, to remind people of how God provided manna from heaven in the wilderness for the people of God. love what Dale Ralph Davis says here. He says, Ahimelech's holy bread becomes David's daily bread. I'd add to that that God's Holy Spirit anointed king or Messiah is invited to eat bread from God's table. And in the presence of his enemies, no less. Did you catch that? Verse 7. Notice there is this brief little sort of aside. And you're like, what does this even have to do with what's going on? But we find that there is a man that is looking on in a creepy kind of way. Verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Now Doeg, he, he comes from Edom, that ancestor of Esau, a people who were not in good relations historically with Israel. Always kind of a dubious type relationship. Well, it looks like Doeg is one of Saul's top military leaders. I, I don't think that he's being pointed out as a guy who's good with like sheep and cattle when he calls him a herdsman. It, it seems to be more of a military type position, probably high up in rank in Saul's guard. See, Edom as a people were not allowed to enter the sanctuary until the third generation. It's very clear in Levitical law. It's interesting to me that it's also the same number of generations between David's grandmother, Ruth, the Moabite, and David. Three generations between him and Ruth, his great-grandmother, that famous, beautiful, godly woman that we read about in Ruth. Interestingly, Deuteronomy 23, 3-4 prohibited Moabites from entering the congregation of the Lord until the 10th generation. Of course, David has a grandmother who is a Moabite. And what's fascinating is in Deuteronomy 23, the reason they are not allowed to come in to the congregation is because they didn't provide Israel with bread and water during the Exodus. Interesting, isn't it? But because David's grandmother Ruth was redeemed by Boaz, David is here able to enter and eat from the table of God. Redemption gave David access with God. Now, maybe you don't think this matters or that this is really in view in this text but it's interesting that when you turn over to chapter 22 in the first five verses that it begins with David meeting the king of who the Moabites the writer of Samuel has not forgotten those Moabites who are in the lineage of David whom he goes to for help now the text keeps rolling but you know what Doeg means he means trouble and we'll see that later. But David is literally here eating from the table of God in the presence of his enemies as they lurk on, as he's looking at him, waiting to pounce. 
See, God provided bread for David. He brings provision to him in the midst of his troubles. Now, Jesus picks up on the same story in in Mark 2. You might remember that, where he is out with his disciples, and his disciples go and they pick grains of head, uh, heads of grain from the field. And the Pharisees see this, and they want to take Jesus to task. And so they, they, they talk to him about the fact that they're not keeping the law of the Sabbath, because it's very clear that they're doing this on the Sabbath, much like the day that it seems David has come to eat bread in the house of God. Jesus could have said, actually, the disciples didn't break the law of God, the Levitical law. They broke your laws about the laws, but he doesn't go there. Now, what's interesting in Mark 2 is that Jesus actually responds by pointing them back to 1 Samuel 21, to David eating bread from the house of God. And he says, here's the, the thing that I think you need to look at. I want you to sort of, sort of take your zoom and your lens off of the disciples for a minute. I want you to put it right on me, squarely on me. And I want you to understand this. I am not a mere human. I am not a mere man. I am the Messiah that David looked forward to. And when David came and ate that bread, he was anticipating that a day was coming when one greater than him would come, and that day has arrived. I am the king that David looked for. See, R.T. France explains this. Jesus' defense of his disciples in Mark 2.28, he says this, the alleged violation of the Sabbath, he, he, he attacks this, he fights back with this by citing the story of David and the showbread, and it's not simply an appeal to precedent. Like, hey, this happened back in 1 Samuel 21. It's the same kind of thing. No, it is a question of authority. Mark 2.28 claims that Jesus has the right to regulate Sabbath observance. The unexpressed premise is a greater than David is here. And Jesus says 1 Samuel 21 points to the authority of David, but the greater Messiah with greater authority has arrived. But there's something more here. God always provides for his children. Every meal comes to us from the hands of the Father who even feeds scavenger birds like ravens and clothes weed flowers like lilies. How much more is God going to care for and feed and clothe his children? See, God fed Israel bread in the wilderness. God fed David bread when he was on the run. And God feeds us, his children, our daily bread. Of course, Man doesn't live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And what we need even more than daily bread is the bread of life, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is the greater David who came not to get bread for life, but to give bread to eternal life. Now, isn't communion a beautiful picture of the greater king who came down to lay his life that we might eat with God? Communion. Have you ever thought about that? David came and he ate with God. We are invited to the table to eat with God. Every time we take communion, we need to realize that we have only been made clean and have access to God based on our great king's sacrifice. We don't ease up to the communion table without considering our own lives and whether or not they are ready to meet with God. The sacrifice of Christ is something that should be in full view as we approach communion. The glories of our access to God. Do you think about that when you're taking communion? Or are you thinking this is taking too long? When we are at the communion table, we are to recognize that there is a 
world of enemies of God that are looking on as we eat the bread that God has provided for us. And we are a testimony and a declaration of who God is. In fact, when we come to the table, we are all like redeemed Moabites and enemies who have been invited to eat bread of the presence in the very presence of God. If you have not prepared yourself to take communion in the past, if you are not a baptized believer who's put your faith in Christ, I want you to know that when we take communion each last Sunday of the month, that is a a, a picture of what it looks like to be the family of God eating with God. And if you want to talk about how you can be part of that meal as it's coming up in the future, I would love nothing more than to tell you how you can be part of that. But our daily bread should point us and our attention to God's provision of eternal bread Jesus. But there's a second thing that we see here. Notice that God not only provides, he protects. He protects David in verses 8 to 15. Now certainly David was hungry, but it seems that verses 8 to 9 unfold David's greater plan. Notice first that David asks for Goliath's sword in 8 to 9. Now look there with me again. Here's what it says. It says, then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. Now here again, David says he took off so quickly on the king's business that he left his weapons at home. Now, you would think that maybe Ahimelech was thinking, this is kind of fishy. I mean, he's sending you on a top secret mission. You're going to fight. And of all things that you forget, you forget your sword. I mean, this is kind of like a doctor showing up to help you and saying, by the way, do you have a stethoscope that I can borrow? I mean, of all people not to have some kind of weapon with him. But here again, Ahimelech seems to play along, or he's super naive. And the priest responds that all he has is Goliath's sword. To which David responds, oh, that old thing. I I forgot that I had left that here. (laughs) That's great. Now, you'll remember that back in 1 Samuel 17, after he slew Goliath, that he took the weapons to his tent. It seems like sometime between here and there, that there was some kind of dedication of this, uh, this uh, tabernacle to which David brought the sword that slew or that cut off Goliath's head. Now, of course, that would have been a symbol of the power of God, the fact that God delivered his people. So you have to ask here, why is it that David has come back to get his sword? Why did he need a sword? I mean, as we follow David all throughout, It's been a highlight that David has not needed a sword to fight or to win victories or to put confidence in. In fact, 1 Samuel 17, 47, David is trash-talking Goliath. You remember that? He says, I'm going to kill you in the name of the Lord, that all this assembly might know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. And now David's scared. So has David changed his fighting techniques? Or has he shifted his confidence from the Lord to his weapons? Well, no. Ironically, I believe this sword is a symbol. It symbolizes that reality. That the Lord saves not with sword and spear. Here's the sword to prove it. This is the sword of my enemy. 
The one that came against me, and yet I won with what? A stone, a rock. So if David thought he was in danger running from Saul to Nob, things were about to get more dangerous when he runs to the Philistines. Now talk about out of the frying pan and into the fire. David runs to Gath. And I don't think it's because he's bad at geography, but look what it says in verses 10 to 15. This is what he says. And David rose. He rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors and the gates and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Now you know things are bad when David runs to Achish, a.k.a. the Philistine king of Gath. Now you know things are, are really bad when you have to run to your arch enemy for protection. He looks so much here like Jesus who told his disciples in Matthew 8, 20, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. See, Gath is David's last option. Gath was the hometown of Goliath, that Philistine that he slew with the sword that he just retrieved. And David doesn't expect them to remember him, but Achish, the king of Gath's servants, see him. They spot him early on and say, hey, this is the guy who they say is greater than King Saul. He is the one who actually fights for his people. Of course, these Philistines, I believe, spoke better than they knew. When they called out, is not this David the king of the land? They were speaking something more true than they realized. See, the women are singing, Saul killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands, and many of them were Philistines. See, David, he understood that they understood who he was. He was God's king. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid. Now, here's what's interesting. Much has happened up to this point. David has faced giants. He's been uh, a victim of Saul throwing uh, a spear at him at point blank range many times. But David really hasn't been afraid up to this point. Many people have been afraid. Samuel was afraid. The elders who came to greet Samuel when he came to anoint David were terrified. You'll remember that Saul was much afraid. Uh, There are so many who have been afraid. The Philistines were afraid and ran. But not David, not until now. And now, notice it says that he's much afraid. So he acted mad, scratching on the doors of the gate, letting spittle run down his beard. Now, beard was a big deal for them. A bigger deal for them than for us. Well, maybe not for all of us. But for them, it was a a bad thing if you were to desecrate a beard. A, A beard was an important part of a man. Some found their identity in the beard. In fact, some wars were created because of someone pulling or insulting a beard. But here David plays the part of an insane man letting spittle drip from his, making him look insane and shameful. And I love Akisha's response. Did you catch it? This guy is crazy. Why are you bringing me another crazy guy? I mean, just look around. Don't we have enough crazy people around here? Do I need another one? I'm not collecting these. And then he kicks him out. 
See, Akish responds, this guy is crazy. And, and I don't want anything of him. I don't really believe that this is the king, this great king that has killed 10,000. Now, there are a couple of factors that arise here. Maybe a question that you have been asking throughout so far as we've been going through 1 Samuel. One is this, did, did David lie? Now, you might be asking yourself, did David lie to Ahimelech? I mean, clearly Saul didn't send him on a secret mission. Though some have said that the king that sent him on a mission was Yahweh, that doesn't seem to be the clear reading of the text. Many highlight that David did not tell Ahimelech the truth because he was trying to protect the king, him from King Saul, thinking that they were in some ways colluding together. Well, a second related question that you have to ask, was David sinning when he deceived Achish by convincing him that he was crazy, by pretending, by deceiving him? Now, we know, of course, also that David has another relative, Rahab, another grandmother, great-great-great-grandmother, who deceived the men of Jericho to protect the spies, and she is commended for her faith. A number of answers have been suggested for issues like these. First, uh, one explanation for David's dishonesty here and, and elsewhere is just to explain it away. In other words, just kind of work through the details in such a way that, hey, maybe David didn't actually lie here. I don't think that's the plain reading of the text. It looks like he lied. A second explanation is to say that there's some kind of ends that justifies the means, some sort of wartime dispensation of grace, right? Where if things are really bad, you can say things that aren't true to protect others. Um, some really respectable people hold to that. I read an article recently by a guy that I respect a lot who, who came out to that end. A third answer is this, that David points to a greater Messiah, but is here shown as he is elsewhere to be a sinner, but that God's grace covers David's sin, that God is for him even as he sins. Now, I'm just going to say the text doesn't answer this question for us, and we need to look to the Scriptures more, and we don't have time to get into this as fully as I would love to, but let each of us be fully convinced in our own minds as we wrestle through this answer. We need to be sure that we understand what is going on and we need to seek God's face in, in what's happening here. But we can at least agree on this. This text is not prescribing lying to pastors or others. It's not prescribing that. It's also not saying that if you get caught up in court that you can act crazy to get out of it. That's not what it's saying. In other words, this isn't meant to give you pointers on how to act crazy well or to show creativity with the truth. Clearly, the Bible says that lying is sin and deception is of the evil one. But what we do have here is God protecting God's king. Here's another question, though. Is David seeking God's will? I think it's clear that he is. He's God's Messiah. So another question. What do you think it's supposed to feel like when you are being led by the Holy Spirit on the ground level of your experience. You know, there are a lot of books about this, about what it ought to feel like when you're in the center of God's will or when you're following God perfectly and, and all those sorts of things. You know, maybe you think that the Christian life should feel somewhat like a, a mountaintop spiritual experience, like one that maybe you had at a youth camp or some kind of revival meeting. Maybe you think that it, it should feel like an endless cycle of ESPN top 10 spiritual plays of the day. Sometimes it can feel like if things are hard, you aren't doing it right. You know, like the time I tried to put a basketball goal together and there was supposed to be a hole there, but it wasn't. So I got a drill out and I drilled it in. It was really hard. It was like, oh, it's 
not supposed to go together that way. They actually make it um, easy for idiots to put together, and I wasn't qualified. Don't drill a hole if there's, you know, not a hole there, right? Well, maybe with life, sometimes you feel like when things get hard that it's because you're not doing it right, and spiritually things feel hard, then maybe it's because, like, God's not in it. But don't miss this. This world is broken, and both Christians and non-Christians alike will face devastating losses, challenges, and sufferings. That is the nature of this world that is broken. Christianity does not promise us that we are going to get better grades, a better job, a better-looking husband, or kids if we follow Jesus and we're doing it right. It doesn't promise you that bad things will not happen to you amidst your faithfulness. Faithfulness does not mean free from sufferingness. To be clear, God so often blesses us far more than we deserve. Amen? It means so much more. I am blessed way more than I deserve. And I know that. I wake up in the morning praising God for that and recognizing I deserve nothing of what I have. But to be clear, though God often blesses us with so much more than we deserve, so many of us also must recognize that we have so much more than daily bread. And every bit of it comes from God's hand to you. Sometimes following Jesus faithfully is costly, though. It it could cost you your job. Some of you have lost jobs. I've lost jobs because I was trying to be obedient to Jesus. Some of you have lost homes or promotions or husbands or wives or reputations because you were seeking to follow Christ. David suffered following God's will as God's Messiah. A third of Samuel has David on the run. Did you know what's interesting? Did you know that a third of each of the Gospels roughly is committed to the last week of Jesus' life as he went to the cross to suffer and die for you and me? And Jesus calls all of his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. I think it's fascinating that he says that. I kind of wish that I could change that and, and say something like, you know, if you really want to follow me, you can take up your couch and follow me, right? And maybe your big screen TV. But that's not the illustration of what it looks like to follow Jesus. It's not an illustration of comfort, but of cost and of suffering. And he says, this is normative for what it looks like for my disciples to follow me. Faithfulness. Catch this. It always feels longer and harder in real time than it reads in your Bible. Faithfulness. It it always feels longer and harder in real time than it reads in your Bible. Like, that's my experience in life. I thought faithfulness was going to be easier and the reward was going to come quicker. If you were looking in this moment for what it feels like to be faithful, sometimes, oftentimes, it is hard. But catch this. Amidst the chaos of 1 Samuel 21, We have two beautiful psalms that have been left to us that give us a window into the soul, the very soul of David, as he's running crazy for his life. You're wondering, what is David thinking in these moments? As it seems like the world is crashing in on him, where is he putting his heart and his trust and his confidence? And it's actually pretty glorious. See, the third point is this. It's not even in 1 Samuel 21. It's a window into the soul of David as he's going through 1 Samuel 21, Psalms 56 and 34. We find God's protection and provision should lead to praise even when it looks like chaos all around us. 
God's protection and provision should lead to praise even when it looks like chaos all around us. Now, we actually have two psalms that David wrote out of this experience, 1 Samuel 21. First is Psalm 56. It gives us an image of what David thought in the midst of being imprisoned in Gath when the Philistines seized him. Now, second is Psalm 36. This was written on the other side of the escape from Gath when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. So one is in the midst of being imprisoned. The other is on the other side of being delivered. Now, you might think that David was thinking in these moments, as he is in this experience, and as he is coming out of being imprisoned in Psalm 36, you might be thinking that this is a psalm that talks about how clever he is. Man, I'm clever. What a great idea. I mean, God, you chose the right guy. I'm resourceful. Or maybe you're thinking, hey, I should get an award for an academy-winning performance. That was great acting. But it's neither of those. No, what we find is something quite different. So catch what happens first in Psalm 56. You can turn there with me. Psalm 56. And you'll notice here that David's trust in God's promises leads to praise and prayer. Did you see that? Psalm 56. And as you're looking there, notice that Zacchaeus' men detained David. It says in verse 1, man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. Now he's probably speaking of the near enemy, but also Saul and his servants who are seeking his life. But David says, when he is afraid, I put my trust in God, in you. Then in verse 4, scan down there, and notice he says, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. I mean, but he was much afraid when he was in captivity. But here he's telling his heart, I shall not be afraid because I trust in the word of God. And then he says, what can flesh do to me? He he repents, he repeats this, whose word I praise twice in verse 10. Now his enemies lurk in the corners waiting to pounce, like it says in verse 6, like Doeg and others. But notice who else is watching in verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings. Do you see this? God is looking on. And he is tossing like a restless man in the middle of the night who is scared for his life. And he is fearful that he is all alone with no one looking out for him. But God is looking out for him. God in his sleep is watching his turning, counting his tossings. None has escaped his eyes. He is not only that, he has put my tears in his bottle. And then asked, are they not in your book? You have recorded them. You have caught, you have taken note of every tear and every event and experience that has caused that tear and you've kept it in your bottle. And you've written it in your book. You are not losing track. And in verse 9, my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. When he prays to God and calls out for help. This I know, God is for me. Do, Do you see that confidence? He is in captivity. Everybody on the planet except Jonathan seems to be seeking his life. And he says this, God is for me. In other words, David prays to the God he knows 
is for him. And then God says, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. To sum up, David sees the God who sees him when no one else is looking out for him. David trusts God's word and God's promises even when the world seems insane and seems to be crashing in on him. God never loses track of David's sufferings. He keeps track of everyone. Speaking of Psalm 56.8, where it says that God collects your tears in his bottle, commentator Edmund Clowney writes this, Our trials are never forgotten by the Lord. He keeps his tears in his bottle. Now, when I was in Israel, it was fascinating the things that they would sell to you. They would sell everything from rocks to bottles. But they had these unique bottles, tear bottles that I found that were ancient, that they would give to people. They were famous because they were used to collect tears over the various sorrows of life and that they would bring to the people of God. And it was to remind them that God would one day bring comfort to meet every one of those tears. Every single tear would come with a, a comfort from God. Now, if that's true for David, there's an escalation of comfort that comes in the face of Christ. See, faithful sufferings aren't merely comforted. We, we find that when Jesus comes back, we're promised in 1 Peter, they're rewarded and then redound to the glory of God who held us fast to the end. In other words, we're not just called to praise God today amidst our sufferings. We praise God in light of our sufferings for a coming day when we will have greater praise because of the sufferings that we had in this life. 1 Peter 1, 6-7 explains. Notice here. He shows what happens when Christ returns. He says, in this, speaking of your sufferings, you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Catch this, so that the purpose is that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, that this genuineness of faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? Every tear in that bottle, praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ returns. Praise today amidst our sufferings, praise on the last day for our sufferings. See, Jesus is coming back to restore the losses of his people. Revelation 21.4, great verse, awesome promise. He will wipe away every single tear. So who can be against you? That should lead you to praise and prayer. David asked, who can be against me? God is for me. How much more is this true for us in Christ? Doesn't Paul sound so much like David in Romans 8, 31? If God is for us, who can be against us? See, David says, God is for me. Paul says, the gospel means God is for you too. Do you see that? Because of who Christ is and because you're in Christ by faith, that means that God is for us too. Because of who Jesus is. Because of who we are in Christ. See, David says God is for me. And Paul says the gospel means God is for us. But don't miss this. In Christ, you can say with confidence that God, God is for me. Did you know that you can say that? It's safe. This is a safe place. God is for me in Christ. But there's another thing we see here in Psalm 34. We just saw that David's trust in God's promises leads to prayer and praise. But notice Psalm 34, what he says. Now this was written when he changed his behavior before Ahimelech. The same, Abimelech is Achish here, Abimelech. But notice what he says. When he was driven away, 
in Psalm 34. David is writing about this experience of escaping. And David praises God for hearing his prayer and delivering him in this psalm. And he invites all who can hear to join in on the celebration of the God who has delivered him. When in verse 4 he says this. He says that God delivered me from all my fears. But verse 7 says this. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Do you see it? Those who fear the Lord, God's protection is about them. And though God keeps every tear of David's in a bottle in Psalm 56, here in Psalm 34, 15, he says, I will cut off the memory of those who do evil from the earth. And then he says in verses 19 to 20, many are the, ap- are the applications of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them from them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. So one is protected. The other is removed from memory. Of course, what's fascinating here is, is that Jesus quotes from Psalm 34. Did you know that? These very verses that we just read about keeping his bones from being broken. Apostle John picks up on this in John 19 where we are seeing Jesus hanging on the cross between the two criminals. And the Roman soldiers came and broke the legs of the two uh, criminals as was customary to suffocate them to death. But when they came to Jesus in John 19.33, it notes that they saw that he was already dead and they did not break his legs. And then they pierced his side and blood and water came out. But catch what John 19.36 says about Jesus' legs not being broken. He says, For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. See, John, as he is looking at Jesus, sees Psalm 34. Sees David praising God for his deliverance. As he looked like a shameful madman while yet trusting God, it was a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ. Psalm 34, 22 ends with this. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Jesus came and suffered and died to redeem sinners. None are righteous with this promise. Those who take refuge in Christ will not be condemned. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1, Psalm 34. We have the greater David who came not to be redeemed, but to redeem. And don't miss this. If you are in Christ, God is for you. So how do you know God remembers our tears and cares about them? How can you have confidence in that? How do we know that God is for us when the chaos of this life seems to be winning? We look to the cross. We look to a God who sent his son to enter into the chaos with us. He did not leave us to it. He entered into it with us. He experienced the suffering and the shame on your and my behalf. He died taking the wrath of God that we deserved on him and was raised from the dead to declare, it is finished. I have won. I am the victor. And all of those who are in me have promise of life and life eternal. You can have access to God too. How do we know that God cares when we watch people we love die before our eyes? Because he sent his son to die for us as he was looking on, that we might live forever and to wipe away every one of our tears. Our God sacrificed for us to the uttermost that we might know that he is going to truly fix all that is broken. See, God's provision and protection in Christ ought to lead us to praise. It ought to lead us to praise when the world seems out of control. 
The gospel should be a constant reminder that God is for us. I might not understand what's going on right now, but here's what I know. God is for me. Here's what I know. He's going to keep his promises to me. So says Jesus at the cross. I know that the future is incredibly bright, even though the present is incredibly scary. God is for me. Do you know that God is for you today? If God is for you, that it doesn't matter how chaotic this life is, the future is incredibly bright. Let's pray.